The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. There's really no vision on my part. It was these kids who had nothing were coming up and saying Somtaurian, which is please take me to school, please take me to study. And it blew my mind. I thought they'd ask me for money or clothes or some water to drink, but it was always some telling. That's what I did. It wasn't a great vision of getting kids into school. So as they were asking, I was getting them into these schools, all public schools and helping with the costs. And clearly that was the answer. Well, welcome everyone to the Good Investing Podcast. My name is Matt Nicard. I'm the co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management and my guest today in the Ethical Partners Studio, in fact, in the Tatrai Room, which also doubles as the Ethical Partners Studio, the Tatrai Giving Fund is our giving fund that here at Ethical Partners where we support uh, worthy organisations. Now, one of those worthy organisations is the Cambodian Children's Fund. And I have here the founder of the Cambodian Children's Fund, Mr. Scott Neeson. Welcome. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Welcome, back to Australia. Are you exhausted yet? I am actually, yeah. <laughs> the acceleration goes on as you get into the trip. More things get added, extra things and people find you're in town. But no, it's been a good trip though. Been a good trip. Fantastic. And when do you go back? I'm going to Brisbane um, tomorrow, then on to Kuala Lumpur for one night. There's an event there, then back to Phnom Penh. Fantastic. And I'm only there for a week, then on to Singapore. When I get back, I'm staying put for a while. I've got to make up. It's my penance for being locked up for two or three years during COVID. Lots to make up for. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, of course, you invested heavily um, of your own time and, and your company's money in the movie industry, and we'll talk about that. Um, and now you're investing in something um, way more important, mm-hmm. um, we would say, and that's the future yes. generation of Cambodia. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I'm hoping the, the model of developed can be taken elsewhere so it goes beyond just Cambodia. The last two decades or since 2004 have been absolutely incredible. And at this stage, what I normally do is I normally do a bit of a biography and I kind of read out and talk about mm. you and you get a little bit embarrassed and then ask you a whole lot of questions. We're going to, yeah. we're going to switch the whole format around here. We're just going to chuck it out yeah. and we're going to do something, something different. I'm just going to get you to almost give us your bio through yeah. the discussion. And I think okay. that's, that in your own words is, is much better than anyone listening to me run through that. So. I'd love to start at the beginning. Um, well, first of all, before we start at the beginning, maybe just tell us a bit about Cambodian Children's Fund, just the, the profile for those that haven't heard of it. It started 2004. It had a very uh, humble goal to begin with because I was um, in a foreign country. I knew nothing about nonprofits. I had a very lucrative job in Hollywood. Uh, and it started as being a very simple goal of getting children who were on this landfill, the Phnom Penh Municipal Landfill, off of the landfill into a safe house, either with family or a foster type parent or extended family, and then get them into school. And that's how it all started. And I was struck by how easy that was to begin with. Um, I was on vacation. I was between studios at the time. It wasn't until later I realized that getting the child in was easy. Keeping them there was hard for a number of reasons. So as we as we hit each obstacle, another program would be developed to try and um, overcome the number of students who would leave. And it developed to becoming a ter- actually a terrific model. Not to be a modest, but the, um, the results have been way beyond my own expectation. And what are some of those metrics that just come to mind as to what oh you've achieved? You know, the, the first 200 children we took in, and these are kids who are either left on a landfill 
by parents who didn't want them. Some were orphaned. Um, some were there with parents who had either um, enormous debt, mental health issues. The first 200 children we took off, just under 70% have gone through university. And I would be happy if they just finished high school. I never dreamed of that. But they, they got so into the education side. And in, in fairness to the organization, all the traditional barriers of um, if the family's got health issues or if there's younger siblings, younger siblings that need to be taken care of, um, we took away those issues forever we could. And so it made it easier. So it was up, basically it became up to the students' um, academic abilities and their own motivation. And then how many kids you got in school right now? We've got 1,800, nearly 2,000. And that includes those in the kindergarten program. We have a special needs program, fairly recent startup. Um, we have everyone from grade one to university. And you've got, you've got healthcare now. We you've got a medical granny clinic. program. You've got leadership. You've got yes. child protection. So it's, child so it's protection grown the, from yeah, the granny education. Program, maternal care um, dropped and built about fairly basic housing um, about 600 homes, 500 around the landfill. They're cheap homes, but they're nice gardens. They've got running water. The most recent ones have a toilet downstairs as opposed to chaired. Um, and it's there to motivate parents to get their child to school. There's only two criteria for getting a home. And one is encourage a child to attend school. And the second is there's no abuse, not substance abuse, physical abuse at the house. And if you can do that and you get one of these homes, there's a nominal rent, very small, $20 a month, just to ensure they don't fall into their dependence trap, try and keep them budgeting. But the wonderful families and the grannies stay there for free. They balance it all out for us. A lot I mean, of those grannies. I mean, if we talk about the grannies, um, I mean, you couldn't have imagined in a million years, you know, migrating from Scotland to Elizabeth in Adelaide in, when was it? Yes. The 70s, uh, 80s? Oh, my goodness. Thank you. But no, it was 1964. 1964. Yeah, it was 1965 <laughs> years old. And my parents emigrated because there's better job opportunities. Scotland was cold and high unemployment. So moved to Elizabeth. My dad got a job with the Department of Defence. My mother was a, a cleaner at the local high school. And yeah, it's my brother and I. And just tell us about your upbringing. It was very, it was very working class area. Um, it was mainly, well, the, it was a satellite city and it was established for new migrant workers, um, a lot of unwed mothers. It was a welfare community that grew up from there. The main employer was General Motors. General Motors Holden were the main, had the main plant out there. They're by far the largest employer. And how was school for you? <laughs> it was good for a while. I, was, I did really well up to, I think, year 10. And then I just found that I couldn't really focus very much. I was staring out windows. I tried very hard to concentrate, but it wasn't my best years. And by the time I was getting into year 12, I just realized it wasn't going to work. And so I, yeah, I left. I left school. What was, it? What was your first job? First job, my goodness, milking cows on a dairy farm, which didn't work out, did some construction work. Um, and then I worked at a electronics company, Target. But the, the break came was when I was, for the first time, unemployed. And the government job scheme back then had a program where if an employer took you on for work experience, the government would pay half salary and so that was a, the first interview my first day was with a film uh, sorry cinema driving theater group 
and projectionist at the drive-in movies and working as a, an assistant in the office during daytimes. I got the job and I worked up from there. That was my first job. So thanks to the federal government job program, it worked. Did, did, did you go into that really wanting to be in the movies or was it just no. a matter of what was around at the you time? Know, it was, I was told I had to go. The government, you know, they weren't very um, polite about it. Here was my job interview, go and get it. And I wanted to work. I wanted to get a job. And yeah, I, I got the job and I really enjoyed it. I had no, I liked going to the movies, but I never thought there was any kind of career there. Well, not other than acting back then. That's, I didn't want to do that. And then, and then at some stage you, you made the move to Sydney. I think it was with yes. Hoyts, was it? Yeah, it was with, actually with Greater Union. Okay. I was with Greater Union in um, Adelaide. They moved me to Sydney. Then two years later, Hoyts made approach and I worked for Hoyts Theatres and Hoyts Distribution Production. And then 20th Century Fox uh, made me an offer to come to Los Angeles and run the international marketing um, outs- worldwide outside of North America. And what, what, did you, what did your family say when you said, um, hey, I'm, I'm off to LA? They, well, they, my dad thought I was crazy going to Sydney, being the big smoke. Uh, he was more mortified when I went to Los Angeles. Um, I was there for 10, 11 years, and I was made president in year 2000. And at that point, he'd got used to the fact it was a good life. And I had my contract. He'd fly out first class, spend time with me at a house up in Brentwood and on my boat. So he loved it. Yeah. He oh, was convinced then maybe it was the right thing to do. Amazing. Well, yeah. well, so what do you think? Well, I mean, it's been a, it was a meteoric rise really from, from, from the beginning through. Yes. What, what, what do you think of the, what do you think they recognized in Scott Neeson that, that said, hey, th- this guy, this guy's going to do well. We want him in more senior roles. Yeah, I was really driven to do the best I could. Um, I was lucky, and I don't mean that immodestly. I mean, there was a decent amount of luck that goes into that. And um, it seemed I delivered the results they wanted, either on revenue expectations or uh, keeping costs down. It was in the cinema side. And where I really blossomed was in marketing, the marketing side, which I really enjoyed. Um, having an understanding of a film's value and target audience, and it just came naturally. And, and this was in the golden years, really, of the big blockbuster, oh, yes. right? Yeah. I mean, this was the yeah. decade that I'm not sure it's ever been the same since, but certainly from a distribution, marketing, and production perspective. Oh, we had a great perspective. Run. Yeah, because I, when I started at 20th Century Fox, there were, I think, there were fifth out of five studios, and we had a great run with Independence Day, Braveheart, um, Titanic, Star Wars. It just went on from there. One after the next. What was your favourite? The favourite one to work on uh, was Braveheart. It was a lot of fun because I was born in Scotland. I was going to say, you, Scot- you, it was partly shot in Scotland, partly Did they get you an extras part there just no, to, just to no, kind of no, link you in with the Scottish? <laughs> didn't want to expose my legs in a dress in a wee skirt. That was a, that was a lot of fun to work with. And Mel back then was, um, it was, he was a fun guy to be around. Very, very, took it very seriously, very stressed. But um, he, he was really passionate about it. So, so what stage did you, uh, I mean, do you think back then and think, I mean, you had it all, really? I had it all, uh, yeah. I did, had a house in Brentwood. It was a beautiful house. The first time I really felt like it was a home, had Porsche SUV, um, really nice boat in the harbour. And coming from such humble backgrounds and with no expectations um, of success, it was fabulous. It was a really wonderful life. And at what stage did you pause and think, well, should I be, should I be happier than this, or were you happy, or what? what, what 
kind of self-analyzing yourself kind of in retrospect, how did you, how do you think you felt at the time? I felt it was a, um, it was a bit of a two, two sorts of feelings. One was, yeah, I mean, I felt like the luckiest guy in the world to have reached that position. Um, I did have those doubts about, is there more to life? Is there more meaning to life than what I'm doing now? But I think everyone does. I mean, I don't, anyone that's got a, a good degree of self-awareness asks that question at some point, whether they're 30s, 40s, certainly into their 50s. They do want to look forward and say, you know, I'm no longer young. What do I want to do with the rest of my life? It's a, it's what a midlife review should look like. You call it midlife <laughs> you're, crisis. You're always going to say crisis there. I was, yeah, but it, it really is. I think it's, it's a review, it's for a good, it? yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You do an audit of where you've gone and you look at where you want to be when you finally retire and what you want to have accomplished, I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, but you know, having worked very hard to get up to become um, the president of International at Fox and all the you know silly money getting paid and uh, the lifestyle, you know, very beautiful girlfriends and you know best tables at restaurants and some really good friends, male friends, really good male friends. Yeah, you know, I had it all. You know, there's a, a lot of the media says that I was you know deeply unhappy inside. But I was no deeply uncertain. I think that most people who've reached a certain level, I think everyone um, has got that self-awareness, ask that. And I think you have to listen to it. You don't have to act. But if you don't, if you don't review um, where you're at, if you've got those doubts, if you don't listen, I think you do so at your own peril. I think there's be a lot of unhappiness to follow. And um, yeah, I've seen people in Hollywood who've, you know, left their wives and hooked up with their secretary, bought you know, red Corvettes or toupees or something. And that's their response to um, being of a certain age. It's uh, it's the wrong reaction to the right question. Yeah, I read the other day that in Indian culture, there's a, and I, I won't attempt to pronounce the names, but they believe there's four phases in life, and the first phase is the is the learning phase. Second phase, um, and I'm oversimplifying this dramatically, obviously. Second phase is is family and establishment, and 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 third phase is is almost reflecting and then giving back and helping. Uh, I'm not sure about fourth phase, um, but it sounds like you were kind of the end of that second phase, and you, uh, from a bit of reading I've done, you were going to join Sony, I think. I had already that signed a, the contract. Signed the contract, and that gave you a bit of travel time in between? Yeah, I insisted that I get a, a break. I wanted two months, but negotiated five weeks. Sony had um, Spider-Man 2 coming up, which is one of their biggest tent poles, so they wanted to be on board in time for that, and that was uh, that limited some. So the plan was to go through Asia to all the Buddhist monuments. I'd already been to uh, Borobudur in Java, wanted to see Thailand, Angkor Wat in Cambodia, then go up north of India to the birthplace of yoga, a Hindu spiritual place, uh, Rishikesh, just by where the Ganges comes out of the Himalayas and do a yoga retreat there. So I'd return all Zen and balanced because I had a really good spiritual practice. I was doing yoga, meditation, um, goodness, three, four times a week. I was also doing kickboxing three times a week, so it was a nice balance, then in the yang. Um, yeah, and it, I felt like it was the best it could get. And so you visited Phnom Penh during, I went during to that Phnom time? Penh, yeah. and I hadn't intended to spend more than a couple of days there because uh, I had to go to Phnom Penh to get to Uncle Wat. There's no other way of getting there back then. And I had a friend's friend connect us up, and I stayed an extra week to look around, and he showed me around. And, 
there were a lot of, I wanted to do some philanthropy work. I wanted to be able to help kids who are living on the streets. And I was naive because um, I felt like and the riverside is where all the tourists go, and there's a lot of kids there who are homeless, and I thought I was the first one to want to help them. And it turned out that, uh, my goodness, it's all so well organized. The kids never get to go to school. Um, either whoever is running the kids, and sometimes it's the parents, are getting the money. And uh, you know, I thought I was a genius because I would, instead of giving money, I would set them up in school. I'd enroll them in school. Uh, private school so they get a good education and I'd done this a dozen times before I found out that the parents were taking going to the school afterwards they had an agreement with the school the school gets half the money uh, they get half the money the kids back on the street the next day it took me a long time to work that out and I realized that well, I, I asked is there any place where there's no plan B where there's no one that's um, no one that's got an option B that there's no one uh, skimming, scamming, um, where there could be some help, where I could really make a difference. And by this time, it ex extended the trip one more time. And uh, they gave me an address. I didn't know what it was. It was I couldn't really read it. But a, a Cambodian colleague who was translating for me took me out there, and it was the landfill. And oh, my, it blew the top of my head. It was horrendous. I couldn't believe it. You know, close to 1,500 children working and in some cases living on a landfill and it's not just the stench uh, there's no sense there's no law there there was no law enforcement um, you know children who'd been left there by parents who didn't want them mothers who'd remarried and the new husband didn't want some other guys kids yeah it was just the, it was the apocalypse and the other thing which the strange thing was the heat was unbearable yeah, it was in 50 55 degrees celsius and what it was is that, I mean, it's a hot country, it's on the equator, but the garbage decomposes, gives off methane, and it ignites. And so in certain places, about three or four inches under a crust, it's molten. It's basically, it's lava made from garbage. So it's, it's got the same red color. The flames will come out occasionally, and kids will step in it. I stepped in it once. I've still got a scarf where the rubber boot melted to the side of my foot. Um, other kids had horrendous scars on their feet when they stepped into this stuff. Kids would uh, burrow a little bit into the garbage and sleep there. They'd sleep there for as long as they could, wake up and do it all over again, try and collect garbage. And the graders, the garbage comes in, it dumps out, the graders level it, and they, everyone's grabbing as quickly as they can. What's of most value? The bigger, stronger males are at the front, so they get the first pickings. And by the time it's maybe 100 meters down, from the greater of the kids and the frail people. Uh, it was just appalling. The smell, the heat, and very few Cambodians knew about it back then. So I was, I was, yeah, I was there and it was uh, it was really mind blowing. I imagine it would be. And you you tried to go back and forth there for a little while, if yeah, I remember I, correctly, kind of back to the US I and did. thinking about it and back and forth and yeah. try to do both. I did the I didn't want to make any rash decisions. I'd been goodness, 26 years in the film business. And I was very conscious of having a one of the midlife crises that I'd mentioned before and giving it up, regretting it, feeling foolish, um, having to go back and try and get my job back. So I did make a commitment to myself not to make any rash decisions for at least 12 months. 
In fact, it was exactly 12 months I pegged the dates. And in that time, I made 11 trips back to Cambodia. And this mean two things. There's one was I could see the difference in these children who were getting off a landfill and getting into a safe residence and into school. Seeing them in school uniforms was such a buzz for me. The flip side was by sitting in corporate meetings, listening to these people uh, getting very angry and tense about bad research results on a TV spot or um, the film's ending. And it just, it seemed so trivial. I just couldn't settle down. And during the following 12 months, I cheated on my promise. I sold my house and boat and everything else. So it started to, um, I'd already made up my mind I was going to leave. Well, tell us about the great garage sale. Do they call them garage sales yeah, in LA? And I, I called it garage sale, and I'm told later it should have been an estate sale because it was all very pricey stuff. I just wanted to unburden myself. It was, I had a five bedroom house and I was single, just full of stuff, all this stuff. And it wasn't about the money. I just didn't want it anymore. I wanted to get rid of it all. Selling the boat was really hard. I loved my boat. I loved going out in the ocean because Sundays were um, out in the ocean with mates of mine. Um, Brits and Australians mostly would take the boat out. They were all working class, more working class, and would go over to Catalina, drop anchor, drink a bit, go diving. Um, so the boat was the hard one. The car, eh, you know, you get tired of it after a while. Um, the house was difficult, but I got a, you know, it was worth a lot of money by the time I left. And that the house itself was the basis for funding the charity. It was never meant to be charity in terms of accepting money. That was, uh, that happened later. I had, I had this budget worked out in my brain, uh, from the sale of the house. If I maintained the level of 80 children, I could run it on my own money for 25 years and then, these kids go through school and I could spend, say, three days a week with that and four days motorbiking around Indochina and it'd all be heavenly. And I didn't count on children like a seven-year-old who's been left on a landfill comes up and says, I've been left here. Uh, will you take me to school? Will you let me go to your school? What did he say? And of course, 80 became 100 and 100 and 200 and it doubled every year for the first five years. So, so when you first you went back to Phnom Penh, post selling the house, well, yes. what was the first? Oh, it sounds like you'd already kind of established some I had, means of doing things yes, at that point that well, was ready to go to the next stage. I was stage. really fortunate to find a, a a young woman back then who was um, she was a lawyer, but she was teaching English, and um, she I hired her to work for me, and she still does. She was the first real employee there. And she was terrific. She still is. She holds it all together. So she wouldn't go to the landfill, but boy, she set up the most amazing structure. She negotiated the rent on a building. She brought in staff for cooking and health care. And we built it from there, really built it together. And, and at what point, oh, it sounds like it might have been, uh, it might have been very clear to you, but the, at what point did you determine that education was the key? That was the start and everything else falls around that because there must there was so much to do has it has it always been that education focus in your been, mind it is and it wasn't really um any kind of, there's really no vision on my part it was these kids who had nothing were coming up and saying something which is please take me to school please take me to study and it blew my mind. I thought they'd ask me for money or clothes or some water to drink but it was always something and that's what I did. 
you know, it wasn't a great vision of getting kids into school. So as they were asking, I was getting them into these schools or public schools and helping with the costs. And clearly that was the answer. I mean, they really gave it to me. If they'd asked for, you know, medical care, I would have supplied that along the way, but it was all about schooling. And that's still the key priority today? It's still the key priority. It's our mission. And it's, I've realized later in this journey that that's where the legacy lies. If you get these children through an education, we have a terrific leadership program, uh, communications, values, social, um, use of social media, um, structure, of, um, values, wisdom, then the real legacy won't be anything I see. It'll be when they have children, they have grandchildren. I mean, they'll never know the same the same poverty, never the same child abuse that would happen um, by families and fathers and stepfathers who won't have to go hungry, uh, they won't have to find food in landfills. It's it's be all gone, and I, you know I won't be here to see it. But it's, you know, there's a great saying about the meaning of life is to plant a tree under whose shade you will never sit, and that's how I look at it. No, that's that's yeah, um, that's a that's amazing. It's an amazing thing to say and to think about. But it's only I mean, I, yeah, it took me goodness fourteen, fifteen years before I realised that some of the ch- students were getting married and their children were just so healthy and well cared for. It was just really emotional for me just to see the transition. And then I realised that that was the end. It was the end of that poverty end of that generational abuse and poverty. And I'm not judgmental of the parents. Um, well, actually, I was in the first few years. How could you um, put your child in a landfill? How could you prioritize them working versus education? But one, it was survival. And two, the Paul Pot days, 75 through 79, were the worst. It was one of the, certainly the worst genocide of my generation. Paul Pot killed 22% of the population, over 2 million people in a three and a half year period. And even more damaging in the long term was every family member was split up. You wanted to break up the family structure. So it was all one year zero kind of government control. So if children were taken from parents and they were all put in different provinces and then moved around and most people never saw their families again. And of course, most people lost a lot of family members. So the parents had no parenting. They had an enormous amount of post-traumatic stress. I mean, diagnosable. I believe it's the highest in the world for the United Nations. And effectively, every parent that we deal with over the age of 45 um, was either a child or born into this. And so they've never known parenting. It took a lot for me to, um, to process that the maternal love wasn't genetic and built into our DNA that it could be broken if there's enough abuse. And as I say, mothers would leave children there to have a husband. And I judge that. And I've got I've never walked in their shoes. I can't imagine what they went through. Hearing these people talk about when they're split up from their families at the age, say, four or five and sent to different provinces. And when the war was over, they they would they told me that many cases, they didn't know where they lived, didn't know the name of the town, the province. They'd spend 10, sometimes 15 years trying to find out where their families were, where they came from. And they had in their mind that there was, uh, their families were there waiting for them to come home. And I just think that's a mental torture. I could never survive that mentally, just thinking your family's there and dreaming every night of seeing them waiting and not knowing where you came from. 
So that it's a very damaged uh, that generation. It's very damaged. It's an unimaginable set of circumstances for it everyone is. listening to this. I mean, how, how do you deal with the stress, Scott? I mean, no, well, how do you how do you cope with the things that you've seen? And I, mean, I send all day in the office, and it's, it's meetings and operations programs, fundraising, and then I go out in the evenings. How I get by um, mostly is I get to see the change in the kids. Um, I've seen some of the worst, worst atrocities. Things um, happen to children unspeakable, and um, I got a. The one thing is that I get to see the joy, no matter how squalid and terrible the area, I get to see them being happy. I know they're going to have a good future. Um, getting them into school was their wish. The big added benefit is that the adult burdens they had, whether it's taking care of younger siblings or sick parents, we remove all of that. And so they're not working. We look after the families. But I've got to keep on reminding myself it's like um, – a piece of fine crystal is broken. I've got the responsibility and the the honour of putting it back together, but I but I didn't break it. I'm just the person they bring it to, and the government brings us some kids who've been through some of the worst abuse. The child protection unit, the national um, policing unit. A lot of the times, the child is um, can't go back to the family, and so we get those kids in too. And majority of times, they're so resilient. I bet. Where, where do you think you go from here? Where does CCF go from here? Where does the, um, well, right now it's all about sustainability. Being 63 and being <laughs> feeling mortal, uh, I want to make sure that if anything happens to me, that the kids will go all the way through. Um, and the exist we're taking in children now, two and three years old, who are coming into kindergarten programs. Uh, they're in foster families in one of the many communities. They've got a 20-year journey with us if they're going to go through university. And even with that, I don't want the organisation to have to stop taking in these children, the ones that I find in the evenings. I want to make sure it goes on. So sustainability, of course, the succession planning, something happens to me. There's a funding side. And then there's governance, oversight, transparency, compliance. So the, the job's now three parts, trying to making sure that there's going to be a sustainability there. Do you think you replicate the model in, in other cities and towns? I'm sure I, you know, you've been approached. That was my dream was to replicate it because it all 36 programs from maternal care, education, um, sort of building homes. We've got vocational training programs for substance abuse, um, the child, uh, the police partnership for child abuse. The model works so well. Uh, I wanted to take it either to um, East Timor or at the time it was going to be the Myanmar Bangladesh border before it became what it is today. But I've got such an emotional attachment now. I would love for someone to donate money to do it and I can train someone to do it, but I can't leave. I really can't. I just got so much emotional attachment to the, the families there, the grannies, the children. Well, it's an incredible story, Scott. Uh, I've got a few other questions here yes. that I think I think everyone will be interested in your answers, just given uh, who you are and what you've achieved. And I think it'll put your answers in in that kind of context. So, just a, just a few general questions here, just just around organisations as they grow. And you would have seen it obviously in your previous life, and now in a very yes. different life now. So, as as an organisation grows, how do you maintain that entrepreneurial spirit and and not become too institutionalized and too standardized. Well, it's I mean, in my case, it was kind of unique because there's no um, product, there's no revenue. I was down the landfill every day, and there's never been about numbers. It's about every child 
and their story. And unless you come over there, you won't believe that. I know the kids' names, and it's not because I'm Rain Man. It's because we have this uh, the process. I find them. They get in for an interview with our community relations social workers. We do a background check on finances, and they've been through some pretty tough stuff. And um, they have to feel special to someone. I feel like that's my role. So I'm very invested in those outcomes. And I'm borderline um, obsessive compulsive about making sure nothing falls through the cracks because I, it's, in this case, it can be significant. It's a child not getting to go to school. Um, it's a child that should be interviewed but doesn't, and the trajectory of their lives change. So it's making sure you've got the best possible people, people you can actually trust to pull these things off to make sure that nothing goes wrong there and letting them do their jobs. It took me, goodness, that's for 12 years to get the right team together. Um, we've got some terrific work. I think they're one of the best teams now. It took a while and you know, things don't go as planned, but uh, we just, we've got finally think we're, we're there. And from a leadership point of view, what, what do you think um, are the most common mistakes that leaders make that, that you see? Um, for me, at least, you can't fake it. You have to have your heart in it. You have to really care for the people working for you, genuinely walk the talk um, and give credit where it's due. I mean, uh, without the team, I, I couldn't succeed. They're doing all the hard work, whether it's in the finance or in community relations or um, any of the departments. We've got I'm really lucky to find these people. Goodness knows they're not there for the money. We don't pay particularly well. And I prefer people from corporate sector because they've got far more um, discipline, attitude to work. So it's a hard balance, but they're a really loyal team. As I said, the first employee is still with me. She's now country manager. That's always uh, always a good sign. Uh, tenure, yes. tenure, I think, is, uh, is one sign that there's a lot going right. Yes, yeah. When you think of risk, Mm -hmm. uh, with regards to CCF, or what, what do you what comes to mind? Well, the the number one risk, of course, was something would happen to me, and I didn't want to accept that for a while. When people talked about uh, succession planning, I thought they were saying he's going to die soon. You know, I'm not going to be around very long. Uh, but that was that was the biggest risk. Less so now. We've got some really good supporters. Um, we're putting together longer term funding, getting the right people in. Um, the risk, of course, is uh, geopolitical. I mean, Cambodia is in a very difficult place between China, the US. Um, we have good relationships with the government. I'd like to maintain that. And, of course, it would be a bit of turmoil if we lost some of our key staff. But, you know, I've always felt that and we always get through it. And what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Oh, don't do anything differently. I don't have any regrets at all. I don't have regrets. I would have... Uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Enjoy life. And what are you reading at the moment? Um, also I'm reading, rereading one of my favourite books. Actually, me, my number one favourite book is uh, The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson, the most beautiful book. I first read it uh, as a man's journey through the Himalayas, but it's far more, far deeper than that. Beautifully written. I first read it when it was on my 40th birthday going through the Himalayas. It's beautiful. And then I'm going to try and get through um, Dostoevsky's The Idiot which I heard is fabulous, but I don't know if I've got the brain span or the attention span, you know. You, you'll give it a go, I'm sure. I'll give it a go, yeah. I'll get the cliff notes or something. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure a couple of people will, will be jotting those down for sure. If you had to name one person who's inspired you the most, who would it be? Boy, uh, the, well, one would certainly be Dalai Lama, who I was on stage with in Perth. Uh, what a remarkable man. And the other one, strange enough, is Quincy Jones. Um, 
I got, he has a prize. He started in 2007, the Q Award, and I was the first recipient. I was lucky enough to hang out with him. And what a very cool, he's not only the coolest guy, he's got the most great, he's got a great outlook in life. He's been through the worst racism. He's a, such a talented man. And I used to go to his house and we'd just hang out together. It was great. He'd doze off in the armchair and, yeah, he's one of my heroes. What worries you the most? What, what wakes you up at night? Uh, there are two things. One is, did I forget any children? I mean, did I forget? I make promises. I try and write them all down at the time. Um, and it's so, I don't want to uh, over-dramatize it, but it's not often that these children get someone who says they're going to do something for them. You know, the greatest gift I can do for these children is to say, can I help you? Is this you look worried, there's something wrong. They look so shocked. And so when they do open up, I want to make sure I don't forget. It can be as simple as a birthday cake, pair of shoes, or getting a counsellor to talk to the parents. And that keeps me awake. And a lot of the tragedies in the early days still haunt me. Right. We're almost there, Scott. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit lost for words up. here. I've got my um, things here. Actually, truth be told, I had a, I had uh, a whole day, day's research as we set out here mm-hmm. and managed to lose it somehow. So <laughs> absolutely yeah. winging it here. And I'm hoping that our audience has found this fascinating. I mean, let's face it, when you tell your story, it is fascinating, Scott. So we, I play this game with my, uh, with my son. It's called yes. the either or game. Um, either or. Either or game. So you just, I'm just going to give you a couple of options. Yeah. And you've got to give me, uh, you've got to basically give me the answer. It's it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, off the top of your head, no preparation, which is good because um, I didn't really do any. So no. okay. <laughs> um, Braveheart or Titanic? In terms of which one I like the most, which is the best to work on? Either. Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. You said that earlier. Yeah. To have dinner with Harrison Ford or Tom Cruise? Uh. I- Harrison Ford, he is one of my heroes. I worked with Tom briefly, but Harrison Ford and I, we had times together. Uh, he was one of the funniest guys, one of the nicest, funniest, most intelligent men. There's yeah. actually a photo on your website of you and, um, yeah, and Harrison be, looking a little bit worse to wear. <laughs> I um, it shows, doesn't it? It I thought, was two or three in the morning. I thought you were going to say um, to that question, <laughs> it depends whether it's a Saturday night or a Wednesday night. If it's Saturday night, maybe it's Harrison yeah, Ford. Munich, just after the Munich Film Festival. and Boy, he can drink. But I'll tell you the story. And we're not recording. He's a very, very lovely man. All right, very good. Um, to have the most impact, would you spend your marginal dollar today on educational healthcare? The marginal dollar? Um, education. Yeah, it sounds like that yes. from what we are talking about before. And to know something about a lot or a lot about something? Oh, that, neither or. That's a hard one. Um, a, lot, a lot about something, Yes. Well, Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure. No, it has, um, thank you so much for telling us your story from beginning to end. Thank you for the update on the Cambodian Children's Fund. We'll, we'll put a link in the podcast to Which, where yeah. people can find out more, where people can donate, um, fully tax it. Child, uh, Sponsor a I'm child. I'm not plugging, but it's a, an amazing program. You've got, you got an opportunity to plug here. You yeah, go for it. It's, uh, it's unique and it originated when I, when I moved from my lifestyle in Los Angeles. I wanted my mates in the US who were equally affluent to understand why I moved there and to experience what these kids had been through and having them feel it. And so, and I wanted to make sure that the organization was removed. So it was the sponsored child, the sponsor. So the sponsor has to write, otherwise we'll take them out of the program. The child writes back and we want them to say, great school work, happy birthday, things I'd never heard before. And that's where it started from. But 
it's far bigger than that now. We have the video calls and I want the child to fill a consistent adult figure somewhere. Do you have many of your old Hollywood mates come to you and say, um, hey, I'm going to pop over or, you know? No, um, I've got some mates I still catch up with. Very few come out. (laughs) They've seen the photos. They're a bit concerned. Uh, They send their kids out. Some of that, they're in there, I mean, 18 to 25. They want them to get out of that bubble. There's a lot of kids who are lost at the moment. They've grown up in a bubble. They know it in many cases, and the parents don't know how to give them a world perspective. Did you think you might have more of the people that you'd work with, the many hundreds or thousands of people you'd work with? Do you think you'd have more kind of ringing up and saying, no, you know what? Not really. Not no. really? No, I didn't really expect much because uh, Hollywood's both transient and what have you done for me lately, um, parochial in terms of the, the causes, what's fashionable. No, I didn't think Cambodia would be high on their list. And when I, saw- I couldn't do anything for them, it was uh, more so. And I saw your dad um, did come out and oh, spend a fair amount best, of time. Yeah, I've never seen him happier. You'd sit out the front of the um, the organisation. There'd be kids, be eight, nine kids around his feet, all holding a finger each because he was so popular. And they're all talking to him. He didn't know what they were saying, but he just smiled and nodded. And as long as I, if that was his day, he was the happiest man. As long as I picked him up by six pm to get a scotch, he was just like it was heaven for him. And your and your brother also? Yeah, he's uh, still yeah. out there now. Yeah. Actually, yeah, he's come out and he's. Second time this year. Oh, yeah, I need to have him around too. He's a good balance for me. He makes films, documents it all. He's been doing that since the earliest days, since I first arrived, and even before then. So he's got all the video footage of the whole story. Do you think it, it, has it brought your family closer together, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It brought that sense of meaning, common purpose that we never had. We're all very um, dispersed, different parts of the world. Yeah, it must be. We yeah, now have a common goal. Something else. I've seen some of the work that your brother's done. Some yeah, of the short movies. I think Coldplay. Um, the fiction yeah. allows yes. you to use mm-hmm. that tune. Um, I think. Have you got that on the website? You- yeah, it should be there. If not, it's on the YouTube. Um, CCF CCFUND CC Fund. Yeah, and it's, CC on the, fund. it's on the website. Yeah, CC Fund is it? Yeah, and what's the it's, it's called Fixu. Fixu, F-I-X. Yeah. We have the, yeah. uh, we got Chris Martin from Coldplay gave us the rights to use yeah. it. So it's up there. As I, I said once before, it was uh, it was meant more personally. It was a good way to get over my, um, goodness, in a very down mood one, heading up towards Christmas a few years back. And I pulled out all the photos of the kids I'd found and where they were now. And it was uh, did with the world a good. So put it to music and it's all there. Well, I recommend uh, everyone to look that up. It's a, about five minutes. Yes. And as God said, it shows the kids um, up to, what, 10, 15 years ago and then what they're doing now. So it'll show a, a child uh, collecting rubbish and, and obviously looking um, unwell to now holding up a, a sports school certificate yes. five yeah. years later. Mm-hmm. And if you don't shed a tear during that, yeah. you're, you're a tough, tough person. It's an incredible um Incredible short film yeah. that yeah produced by the your, your brother. You can't fake it. That's a beautiful yeah. thing. It was 15, 20 years in the making. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And look, thanks again, Scott. We really appreciate your time and um, best of luck. And, and we'll for keep you. in touch. We're, we're, we're actually visiting uh, early next year. Yes. Um, yeah. And can't wait for that. Oh, I can't uh, wait to show you around. Um, There's nothing quite beats being on the ground. I promise Seeing I won't wear white. Poverty. I won't wear white linen. I don't do no. Don't do the white linen pants <laughs> like one celebrity did. <laughs> yeah, that was a very short-lived relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Mental note, don't wear white linen on yeah. tour mm-hmm. of CCF's facilities. Thanks again, and uh, thanks for being guests on the Good Investing
podcast, as I said, I'll, I'll put a link there to Cambodian yes. Children's Fund and um, uh, all listeners can, can, can click in and have a look and get to know a bit better. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.